You are listening to the Brentwood Baptist Church Life Group Leader Podcast, a resource to equip and encourage group leaders on their journey toward being disciples and making disciples through life groups. Here are your hosts, Jay Fennell and Paul Wilkinson. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to another week of the Livingston Podcast. I'm Jay Fennell, and I'm here with Jason Dukes and Paul Wilkinson. And, uh, and so today, as we begin our discussion on the Rhythms of Ascent Church for this week, the question that we want to pose and get some clarity on is the, the idea of prayer. Where does prayer uh, factor into all of this? Obviously, it has a pretty important role, I would imagine, when it comes to disciple-making or to live sense. So why does prayer matter? To a sent church, Jason. Well, I think I mean the obvious the obvious reasons why it matters are are the ones that we typically uh, couch the idea and the thought and the practice of prayer in. Right, like we know we should be praying. Ho- hopefully, we value the prayers Jesus told us to pray. Right, which is obviously the Lord's prayer gives us some implications as to the very ways that He thought of life and the messages, the things that we need to remember. Um, his challenge to us to pray for workers for into the harvest. Hopefully we're praying that prayer. <clears throat> um, different ideas of, of even, you know, praying for those who are lost and searching, praying for mission, praying for the sick, praying for the hurting. Like we, we see throughout the New Testament all these different ways. So certainly intercessory prayer and intentional prayer and mission-driven type of prayers, those are all, those all matter to a sent church. And that's important for us to remember. But what I hope that we don't miss is, and what we often miss, I think, is Paul's simple statement about prayer in 1 Thessalonians 5, right? Which anyone out there that likes Bible trivia uh, is, um, you know, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17 or 16, whichever one specifically that this... uh, is in, it's the shortest verse in the Bible in the Greek. So not in the English, right? Jesus wept is the shortest verse, but in the Greek, it's the shortest verse. It's just one word, and it's the Greek word for to pray without ever stopping, right? So don't ever stop praying. Pray without ceasing is how we typically hear it. And I, I, obviously, Paul doesn't mean that we go beside our bed and do intentional intercessory prayer for 24 hours a day, right? That's a completely secluded life. It's not a one another life. It's not a, a with Christ life. That's not that's not what he's intending. Um, in fact, that would be weird. And that's what he's saying that the Thessalonians were already doing. He tells them, live a normal life, guys, being a little bit weird, right? Like they were sensationalizing this stuff. And I think what he's trying to say to them there is who the spirit is and who he's leading you to be. Tune into that. Right. So as you go about your work day, Thessalonians, tune into that as you live as a, as a family, tune into God's spirit as you live, like tune in, listen for his promptings. And I think the reason that prayer matters to a sent church and to sent people is because it, it lets us in on. It's almost like someone who's on a mission in a military sense and, and constantly having someone having in an earpiece where they can have constant conversation with someone who sees the bigger picture, who understands the larger battle at hand. Again, every metaphor breaks down, but using that metaphor. And who can give specific instructions in the midst of that particular person in that mission. And and so prayer tunes us in. God's Spirit then prompts us, whether it's something going on in our own personal life, or our family, or our neighbors, or our workplace. It allows us to be in on what He's up to. 
Yeah, I, I, I know in my own life, I've, um, I'm much more sensitive to the Spirit's promptings when I am very close to God in prayer. Yeah. Um, and, it, and yet, conversely, when I am, am not praying without ceasing, mm-hmm. um, and my prayer life has been sporadic or inconsistent, I am not sensitive to the Spirit's promptings in my life uh, to go to, to say this or to show discernment here or to even have eyes to see opportunities for disciple making and for serve opportunities and things like that. You know what I mean? So, so, so you're right. Prayers, it's, it sets our dial. That's right. To the, to, to the, to the same frequency that the, the spirit operates on helps us to truly connect with the work that he is doing in the world around us because he is working all the time around us. Isn't yeah. He? Yeah. And that's required for a with God life, right? Yeah. Like you can't, you can't live with him apart <clears throat> from that. And I think, and I've said this before, I think it, I think it, I don't know if I did on the podcast stuff, but I, but I think it's important for our folks to don't, don't, don't take this example to its extreme and, and do what maybe some people might do and, Act like, oh, I was having a conversation with God and you interrupted me. Like, don't, don't do that. But, but I think, I think it's important. We often think of prayer, for example, when people talk about it as spiritual discipline in the, in the context of spiritual disciplines. Like, we often think of prayer as I've got to go interrupt my typical schedule to have some time in prayer. Right. Now, we may not like hearing that, but that's how we typically think of it. Right. Right. So, but I think that's an, an incredibly, um, it, I think that's a gross misunderstanding of what the New Testament teaches us about prayer. Really, if we really take what the New Testament teaches about prayer to heart, not in that annoying way, like I gave example of earlier, where we act so super spiritual, like everyone's interrupting us. That's not what I'm saying. But if we take what the New Testament is saying about prayer, we need to think of it in terms of life interrupts my conversation with God. My conversation with God doesn't interrupt life. If I'm going to pray without ceasing, then the circumstances of my everyday life, they, they have to fall into the context of a never-ending conversation with God. That's, that's what prayer ought to be in my life. And so for a sent church, I never exit that conversation. Right? That's why I'm always a sent one. And we see that in Jesus' life. I mean, you read the guy, you see it in the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John stories, right? Where he'll be in the middle of the story and pause and say, God, I, Father, I did this for you, blah, blah, blah. And he comes right back to it. Like, that, that, all this stuff is happening in this constant conversation with the Father. Yeah. And that's how we need to think of it. Yeah, it's good. Prayer is an incredibly important aspect to a heart, to a life that uh, desires to live sent. So, Jason, why does welcome matter to Ascent Church? So, welcome, man. You know, welcome, hospi- everyone, everyone typically, especially in the Southern United, in the Church of the Southern United States, uh, typically understands why hospitality is important. And uh, being hospitable in our lives is important. We, we, we get that side of it, right? Like, we... We may not always practice it, but we typically do at least recognize that opening up ourselves to welcome people is important. So, so first of all, that is important to Ascent Church. That's important to people who live Ascent life. 
But I want us to think about it a little bit differently. Let's go to the other side of it, right? So not just that we open our lives up and welcome people, which we should do. I mean, that's, 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 that should come out. We should be compelled to live like that by this gospel that's been given to us by the way that God's welcomed us into his life. But at the same time, we also should be looking for people who welcome us into their lives. That's, I think that's a part of disciple making that we typically have not trained for. We typically haven't helped people see the various folks that they encounter in their everyday life through those gospel lenses. Jesus in Matthew 10, when he sends the disciples out for the first time, he tells them, hey, look for the, look for the folks who welcome you into their house. And so the principle comes from that thinking, right? Like he's saying to them, don't try, don't, you're not, you're not trying to force your way in, in on this. Like if, if their heart and their life, if someone's not ready to engage with you in this, it's probably, you're going to, you're going to be aware of that, but there are going to be some people who do welcome you. There are going to be some people who, who are ready. They, they're, they're eager for this. And sometimes we run into them and God's spirit prompts us to just go all out and give a full presentation, if you will, of the gospel, right? And, and so those, those are those moments where we, we sometimes get nervous, right? Cause like, what am I going to say? And I don't know what to say, but God's spirit's going to prompt in that. But that seems in the new Testament, like it's more of an exception than the norm. You know, the norm tends to more be, I, I, as I live my life, there are some people that begin to welcome me into theirs and, you know, I welcome them into mine. They welcome me into theirs and we begin to learn the gospel together And so put those kinds of glasses on as you go in your everyday life and look for the people that welcome you into their lives. And we can give examples of that if you want, but most people, most people kind of know what that means, right? Like they, they can tell when someone is inviting relationship or inviting an opportunity to connect. And, and, um, and so, you know, look for those opportunities because that's, those are bridges for the gospel. Yeah, and so I'll just mention two things that you prompt in my own thinking is one, theologically, if we follow a God who doesn't um express or at least doesn't only express coercive power, then then why would we think yeah. that our, our presentation of the gospel and our living of the gospel ought to be coercive? Yeah. In the same way. And two, you really struck um <clears throat> some thinking in regards to Paul's actions. So we see him in Acts going into the synagogues first and then they wouldn't accept him. They didn't like his teaching. And he said, all right, I'm through. I'm going to the Gentiles. Yeah. And so you see it not only in Christ, but in Paul uh, as well, where you go to people who are welcoming to receive this message. And we, we invest in those and we circle back for the others. That's great, man. And, and even the Athens story for Paul is such a great example mm-hmm. of that, right? Because some of the guys didn't believe, didn't like what he said, but there were some who did. And they and so he stayed with them, mm-hmm. right? He, he engaged with them. I mean, that, that's disciple making. And I think... I think that kind of living gives us a little bit less fear and a little bit more confidence to begin to look for folks that actually maybe want to have those conversations. The problem is we don't often look for it. And that's what I think we're encouraging here is let that be a practice of Ascent Church. Um, How does that look like in our lives, Jason? Inviting along people. uh, Why does inviting along matter to Ascent Church? Well, I think, I think, First and foremost, the reason it does is because, and, and I hope our listeners will hear the fullness of this statement. I'll say it a couple of times just for them to, to catch it. But if, if presentation of the gospel was enough, then, then Jesus would not have put skin on. 
right? But presentation of it alone wasn't enough. Presence was required. And so not only presenting it, which the God, the prophets, the law, all of these things highlighted, foreshadowed, gave glimpses of this story this God was writing and this message that he had been trying to communicate with us. But ultimately, he himself put skin on, and John 1.18 tells us, came to clarify for us who the Father is. Like, who is the Father? What's this message he's always been? What does he really think of us, right? This gospel that he's giving to us. And so inviting along is the way that we then, like Jesus, he says, as the Father sent me, now I'm sending you. Well, it's not about going to a cross, right? Like he did that. But it's about the way that he came with presence and taking initiative and to love and to serve and invite others to do those things with him so that they might also learn the gospel and clearly see who the Father is and his love for them. So if I don't have, if I don't create presence with the lost and searching, so not just presence with other believers, that's important too. We've talked about that before, how you've got to have both, right? You've got to, you need the present. We need the presence with believers because we need the encouragement. But then someone among that group has got to be the provoker, the person who then pushes us back out so that we don't just stay comfortable with people like us who think like us, but pushes us back out to then also go have presence with the lost and searching. And we do that together, right? And so inviting along is the way that we do that. So the contrast would be for many years, right? Like during the church growth movement of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, for instance, in America, literally, I mean, this was the constant statement that you would read in the training materials, right? It would be, you guys get serious about inviting, and we, speaking of like professional teachers, paid staff, pastors, blah, 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 like we'll do the instructing, you do the inviting. And so evangelism and disciple making became synonymous with inviting to, mm-hmm. right? But like we've talked about before, to church, at church, from church, in church, those aren't even biblical phrases, Right. So you can't just invite someone to something, right? That, that, that's not enough. It's not that that's bad. I mean, it's great to invite people to an event or to a gathering or to a Bible study or to a fellowship, whatever, those type of service project. That's great. But just inviting to is not enough. Inviting along is also needed. And Jesus showed us that in the way that he was sent. And now he says, you're sent like I was. So I think, and and so we have to begin to think in terms of, it's not just that I'm trying to find some people to invite to something, but who is Jesus leading me to invite along into my own life so that we together can discover the gospel. I don't have all the answers, but together we can keep learning the gospel with those that are lost and searching as well as some other believers. And then we all together are on this journey. Yeah. I mean, he invited them along so that obviously one of the, one of his disciple making strategies in the inviting along as they lived with him was for them to see him embody the gospel that's right right in the way that he lived yeah so in that part of it as we that's a huge inviting part of it, yeah. people along we're not just presenting a message with our lips absolutely and that's very very necessary uh, for folks to understand and, and, and be saved. But we're also demonstrating it. We're embodying the gospel too as we live, showing them what That's this right. gospel living looks like. That's right. And I, I hope our, I hope the listeners hear that clearly, right? Like we're not in any way 
reverting back to in the 90s that it got heavily criticized back in the 90s that oh I'm doing relational evangelism that's not what we're talking about we're not talking about just a I'll never share the gospel or we're not misconstruing that quote that everyone always says preach the gospel if necessary use words well I mean that's a nice quote I get the heart behind it but but you can't you can't give the gospel to somebody without using without words the gospel Jesus is the word himself, right? Like you, there's a reason why he's called that because this is the message that God's always been trying to communicate. Mm -hmm. So how are we demonstrating and declaring? I think our listeners though will be surprised that Jesus had, had three specific, in my opinion, it's my opinion. He had three tactics that he used in inviting along serving. Like we talked about, I think it was yesterday or the day before, Right, serving this idea that we're inviting along people to maybe it was last week, but we're inviting along people to serve with us. He did that. He invited people around a table with him. He was constantly eating and sharing meals and drinks with and, and just engaging with them. It was, it was table conversation and serving together. Those were his two main rhythms. But then a third rhythm was he taught. But his way of teaching was different than the other rabbis, right? Like that's, and, and that's in the text even, how he would teach with authority like people had not heard before. Well, when you, when you move your teaching into provocative questions, when you move it into the, and he asked many, exponentially more questions than he just gave answers to, right? To people. And so he moved it into where he listened to them. And even ask questions that demonstrated he was really seeing and hearing where they were, right? His questions were not just trying to give facts. They were engaging people where they were. So that's even a practice of inviting along. Are we asking, are we asking God's spirit to help us be able to ask the kind of questions? Well, we won't ask the right questions if we aren't listening well to the people that we're inviting along, right? So those become our inviting along kind of rhythm, serving, table conversation, learning together as we question and discover things together. Inviting along. Uh, it's a, a aspect of our disciple making that's so key. That's right. As we're doing life with people and um, declaring and demonstrating the gospel in front of them. Introduce us, Jason, to this word, to this phrase, gospel fluency and gospel translation. Those are kind of new phrases, I think, that maybe a lot of people have never heard of before. So the question is this, why does gospel fluency and gospel translation matter to a sent church? Well, and, and you're right. I think to some people, those are going to be new terms. I, I think I think that the phrase is new. The terms are things that we're very aware of. And so right. my challenge to our listeners would be process it in in terms of what you already understand so so for example before i i will unpack what they both are and as far as the phrases go but think in terms of for instance the word gospel right we, we know the gospel is more than just a, a, a specific concept about a cross and resurrection that we maybe hear a sermon on and then we pray a prayer and we're converted right we know we know the gospel is it, it, it's it's more than just this concept that someone might, uh, in some ways, think actually happened, but not really understand the full effect of it. Right? We know the gospel is actually news about what that declared about us, of what that finished, what that secured, what how God used that in His redeeming and His restorative purposes. Right? 
And it's even the bigger story of the scriptures. We know it's this amazing story that he's been telling all along, even naming his son Emmanuel. And John calls his son the word. This is the message he's been communicating to us all along. It's the good news that makes us who we are and whose we are, right? Well, think about that in terms of this phrase, right? So think in terms of the scriptures themselves, the the Old New Testament, the living word, as, as obviously uh, we know it's called. John saying in the beginning was the word. Now he's referring to Jesus. But it, but we, we equate these together because Paul later calls it the word of God. Like, like you know, we, we pull these phrases together. And so we start understanding the gospel in this way, but it's a word. It's And so in other words, it's a language, if you will. It's a kingdom of God language. It's a it's an on earth as it is in heaven language. The Old and New Testament is the story of God that's full of this language of of ways that we don't understand him and do understand him and, and relate well with him and don't relate well with him. Because mm-hmm. the Old Testament and New Testament are full of stories of both, right? And so we see all of this language throughout. And so gospel fluency is when, put simply, his word becomes our words and his ways become our ways, right? It's it's this idea that that instead of us having our own way that we might understand the world and even talk about the world, we're, we're becoming to understand how so identified with the gospel that we are and how so defined by the gospel that we are that we begin to even see the world that way and think of the world that way and talk about the world that way. So in all, it's almost like we're, we're constantly growing and understanding how to even speak the scriptures into the flow of our lives, not forcing it into our lives, right? And so... Uh, it isn't fancy in the sense of like I talk in King James version or mm-hmm. ESV or it's not that, you know, it's, this, it, it's, it's, it's simpler than that. It's this idea that my neighbor, maybe that I, my wife and I, you know, we've been loving this couple and this is a true story from when we lived in Orlando, but, um, you know, there was a couple that we had been walking with and, 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 uh, long story short, cause there's a lot that transpired with them one night late, they end up at our house and, She's flustered because they've gotten into this big fight. And, you know, so he and I end up going out to a place that was open really late and getting some wings together. And and he begins to ask me marriage questions. Well, we've been loving them enough. I think he began to open his life up, right? To, and, and his wife was at my house doing the same thing with my wife, right? And then they were talking, we were talking. And I didn't pull out a Bible and say, Hey, I'm going to read Ephesians 5 with you. Now, I could have probably, but in the flow of our conversation, that wasn't maybe as appropriate as me just answering his question by saying, here are some things that have really mattered to me that as I have under, if I, as I keep growing to understand them, it helps me understand my wife. It helps me understand who I need to be as a husband. I don't always do it well, but it, it's shaping our, our marriage because we, we're not perfect. We struggle. And, and I, so I laid out some principles and it was so funny because his response was, man, that's deep. Like, where did you learn that? Right. Well, I, I, I didn't give him the address until then. Right. I, I told him, well, I, I read it in a letter called Ephesians and, you know, that Paul wrote. It's in the New Testament. And, and people might wonder, was he that lost? Like he didn't understand. Well, no, he didn't. He didn't even know what Ephesians was. Like, this is where he was. And, 
but I began to translate the gospel into his life through that scope of marriage, if that makes sense. And so gospel translation then is beginning to learn someone else's language and story and circumstances while I've become fluent in the gospel, and I'm able to then speak it and and demonstrate it into their very life circumstances and relationships and, and, and crises, you know, whatever it is that they're facing, I'm able to converse about its reality and how it comes to bear into their lives. Um, I think about learning a foreign language. Yeah. Equivocate that to if you're learning French. Yeah. So it's so that our listeners can kind of understand a parallel and kind of what you're talking about here. Yeah. It's a good, that's a great question. I, I mean, a great, it's, it's a good way to think about it. So I grew up in New Orleans, which Hollywood tells us is a French city, right? But that's not reality. That's not right. No, it's not. <laughs> so, oh, okay. so Southwest of there, they speak a Creole version of French, but it's, mm-hmm. it's not reality in New Orleans really. I mean, it, you might find it in pockets. But I, for whatever reason, though, French was taught in all the public schools. You don't see that commonly, right? And usually it's just Spanish. And um, but so I took it from third grade to 11th grade. So did that make you fluent in, in, it, in French? It didn't at all because I didn't speak. I didn't live anywhere where you speak it, right? So right. I didn't begin to think in it. I didn't begin to speak it well. I couldn't just operate in that lingo, right? Like I didn't. It didn't shape the way I. You weren't thought. immersed in That's right. in French culture. That's to right. Where you would need to that do that, right? No, and I, and and what's funny is I've been coaching and encouraging some church starters up in Montreal where they do speak French, and it's amazing to me every time I go up there. Anytime I'm up there for longer than a couple of days, I find myself beginning. To, to start seeing some of that fluency develop, if that makes sense. Because I took all this French, right? And then I even went to college and clipped out of 18 hours of it, tested out of 18 hours of it, took one more class and got a minor. And yet I can't speak it fluently. And I think, I think if I was somewhere living where I was immersed in it, like a Montreal, and I lived there for four or five months, I think I quickly would become fluent because I have learned enough. Right. But I think that's the predicament that a lot of people find themselves in as Christ followers, right? Like I've taken a lot of classes in the, in the scriptures and I've taken a lot of, I've, I've learned a lot of the language of the scriptures, but have I truly immersed myself in the mission of God? Mm-hmm. Because again, we've talked about it before, I think Tom Wolfe says it so well that I can't understand the message of God if I don't understand the mission of God. And so if I don't immerse myself in the mission of God, that message becomes nothing more than facts. I know nuggets that I might try to make myself feel better about. I may even pick up on facets of what the identity, my identity is in the gospel, but I I won't really keep growing toward completely understanding the world, including myself in light of that gospel language Mm -hmm. and the message of the gospel until I truly immerse myself in the mission and purposes that the gospel compels me to. When I do that, I grow in gospel fluency. And as I relate with the world, I'm able to translate it into the lives of other people because I've been translating it into my own life. That's good. Gospel fluency, gospel translation, terms that worth kind of contemplating and thinking through, aren't they? Yeah. Why does gospel engagement and gospel multiplication matter to a sent church? Well, uh, I think to answer it concisely, and then we can unpack it some if you want. Um, I think gospel engagement matters because from an engagement standpoint, 
we can't just keep the gospel to ourselves. It's it, it 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 compels us. It compels us on mission with Jesus, and so it moves us to engage with people for the sake of not only us getting to show them how the gospel has come to bear in our lives, but helping them understand how it comes to bear in their lives and the identity that it gives them. And so there's several ways, obviously, that we can engage. But I think a healthy way to say it is just think about how Jesus did it. Don't don't think in terms of legalistic notions that we might come up with. Just think, how did Jesus engage, right? I think he I think he served, and I think in that process he invited some some men along to serve with him and taught them the gospel in that process, right? So that gives us a great model to say, hey, are we serving and are we inviting along the lost and searching to, to serve with us so that we might do the same thing that Jesus did? Secondly, right, the this idea of him being around table and he used the table, he conversed around, he engaged in that way. And that's an easier one to do. Very few people need equipping to eat or drink coffee or those kinds of things or go to a ball game or whatever. And and so we can invite people into those things with us. And then we certainly, he engaged through teaching. And, and even more than that, teaching is a great word, and I love that word. But I don't think his philosophy was just to hear himself teach. I think it was a lot more about learning. And so the idea that they learned, right? Because he says, teach so that obedience comes, is kind of what he, the, phra- the phraseology he uses in the in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. So this idea that you're not just teaching it, but it's being learned because it's being lived. Right. And so this engagement to whereas I serve together and have the table time together and these that those rhythms are in place and I invite people to do that with me and we and we learn the gospel together. We get to learn it as we engage in those ways. And so I think gospel engagement, it really and, and I hope our listeners hear this. And in fact, on the Af South campus, uh, Aaron Bryant has been emphasizing this by a sign that he's put up that's the number one over the number 168 so a fraction one over 168 and the illustration he's giving is what we do here in this building is one 168 of the story of the church right there's 168 hours in the week and the other 167 hours of the week are where we get to go do gospel engagement mm-hmm. where we get to practice gospel translation and, and grow in gospel fluency we certainly are encouraged in that here while we're while we're in this gathering together as believers and even maybe unbelievers that have come with us as well. But but that level of gospel engagement is the real story of the church. And so then, you know, gospel multiplication is the multiplication of people that do gospel engagement. And that's where that's where disciples making disciples happens, right? So those lost and searching that maybe you invite along with you. Um, and you, you learn and serve and, and are a table with them and gospel fluency, gospel translation, all these things that we've been talking about. And then they quickly begin to do the things that you do with them. That's natural. Mm-hmm. I see that in my own kids, right? You've probably seen that in your kids where you can quickly do something. You can do something with them and they quickly begin to do it because they've been doing it with you, right? That's why multiplication can happen usually a lot quicker than we think it might. And so gospel multiplication becomes this this multiplying of disciples making disciples, multiplying of people who do gospel engagement. When I think about that word engagement too, um, gospel engagement, it's not just something that we, um, it's not an add-on yeah. to our lives, right? I mean, it's not, it should be our lifestyle. That's right. Right? That's, that's right. And, and, I, and I think that's fair to say, even though it is certainly convicting to all of us, 
because Jesus did it. Like, I mean, if the son of God decided to put, if God himself decided to put skin on, he comes to us as the son of God. He walks among us. He invites these disciples along and the, what he had strategically chosen to do with them was these rhythms that we've just described. So, so my question is this, what, what, what do you think Jesus would look like today uh, if he were living in Brentwood for, or this zip code or Williamson County, he's living, Jesus comes and he wants to, he's, he's get on again. He's, he's living in Williamson County. What do you think Jesus is doing? Engaging. So, that's a great question. So, you know, if we take, if we take the example that he gave us when he enter, entered into that region of Galilee, right? He, he, he grew up, he took on a job, he did what all Jewish boys would do. He was apprenticed in a certain field, like he was in carpentry, which more, more likely was a masonry concept. Cause the, for our Bible, people who like Bible scholar stuff out there, which I think a lot of your life of, of uh, the, the different leaders do, you know, the Decapolis was being developed at the time. So Rome was building these 10 cities in that region. And so the level of development was high. The number of masons and, and construction workers was high, much like it is right now in Middle Tennessee, right? Right. So what maybe he comes and does that similar thing in the booming economy right now in Middle Tennessee. And, uh, and eventually, though, in the religious culture of Middle Tennessee, much like the religious culture of Galilee, he begins to engage in what his purpose of coming was. And so he starts to teach a little bit, right? People begin to realize, man, he's got something to say. And he says it with authority. And, and, he, and he was on the rabbi circuit for a little bit in Galilee. And maybe he does that here. And churches invite him to speak a little bit. And all of a sudden, he's got a little bit of a following. And, and the guy that works up at Bank of America and the guy that works up at Bridgestone and a, a doctor at Vanderbilt and a teacher at Belmont and and, uh, you know, on and on and on, we can name, mm-hmm. you know, different individuals, a tax collector even, we can go there, right? They all seem to show this, that like, they keep showing up to hear this rabbi teach on the rabbi circuit or this teacher speak, this guest speaker in the various churches here of Middle Tennessee. He begins to invite some of them along, and he invites them into the rhythms that he was engaged in, the teaching rhythm that he was engaged in, the way that he served the needs of the community, and the way that he dined together and walked together and lived together and conversed with them about the very things that they were hearing and seeing, right? I think if he moved to Brentwood, I think that's what he would do. And so I think if we're going to make disciples with him, what if that became our life? It would, we would have to reorient some things. We would have to reimagine even what church itself from, from a, a, an event kind of thing. Like what is this thing church? Right? We'd have to reimagine it for what the New Testament makes it to be, which is a who, a people on mission together, a people that love Jesus and follow him and do what he's up to, which was making disciples who make disciples, right? Like he, he strategically chose to do that because he wanted this gospel to be taken to all the nations. And so I think if he moved here to Brentwood, I personally, and this is my prayer for Middle Tennessee, I believe he's up to the same thing among us right now. I think he wants to send to Middle Tennessee and from Middle Tennessee because of the level of religious culture and the number of people here that follow him. And I think he's eager to call us to be disciple makers the way he was.